1: Hi, this is Sandy. Today's Money Tales guest is Finca Yurkovic. We all know it's hard to change our money habits and bad money behaviors. Finca has figured out some key techniques that have reliably allowed her to change course and value money as a resource to fuel her and her family's values and dreams. In this episode, Finca shares these techniques with us so we all have an opportunity to learn and apply them to our own lives.
2: Hi, this is Cami. Finca is president of Finca Communications, Inc. She consults with clients in areas of personal branding, leadership, sales, client experience, and employee engagement. Finca helps her clients discover their brilliant difference to get 100% clear on their unique talents, skills, and expertise so that they can use their personal strengths to grow their business. Be sure to check out her book, Sell From Love, Love Yourself. Love Your Client, Love Your Offer, and her Sell from Love podcast. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from the discussion. Now, on our conversation with Finka Yurkovic.
1: Finka Yurkovic, welcome to Money Tales. We are so glad you're here joining us today.
3: Well, thank you so much, Sandy and Cami, for having me here. I am excited to be here with you both.
1: To get our conversation started, will you please give us an overview of the journey of your life, focusing on two to three pivotal moments who really make you the person that you are today? I had
3: this one moment when I was six years old. I was heading into school and my name is Finca, which is a very unique name. And I remember walking into the school and my mom looked over at me and she said, Finka, do you want to change your name? And I said, change my name. And she said... Well, if you want to make it easier on yourself. And so growing up, names like Lisa, Kathy, Mary, they were kind of the norm. And it was kind of my first lesson on being different and having something different about you. And, you know, in the goodness of my mom's heart, she's literally trying to make life easier for me. And so I looked up at her and I, I picked a name and I said, I want to be called Josie. And, and Josie wasn't a random name. It was my neighbor. I was six. She was her daughter. The da- her daughter her, was named Josie was 12. And, you know, just picture being six years old. And there's this like 12 year old who's so fancy and wears these nice dresses and had this fancy perfume. And I'm like, I just want to be like Josie growing up. <laughs> And that's that moment. Like, it was just like, all right, I'm going to pick Josie. And and literally, I went through school, and later, and when I went into my financial services world, I was known as Josie. And at home, in my personal relationships with my friends, they called me Finca. And I had this kind of way of showing up in the world where there was a version of me that I showed up at home. And then there was this other version of me, this very type A, ambitious, especially in, in financial services. You kind of, one, if it's a natural thing that you have, it gets really nurtured in that environment. <laughs> like we like go-getters, competitive, ambitious. So that part of me, and it was almost like I had these two parts of me. And I, and over the years, I learned to do this really well, which was compartmentalize myself, meaning I learned how to show up in certain environments with a certain part of my personality or a certain part of who I am. And in other environments, you'd show up differently. And I'm going to say at first, it was really, it was motivated from this place of hmm, afraid of what, not always, but there was this place of, I was afraid of what people might think. What if I showed my true colors? What if I showed up authentically? And then working in banking There's a certain type of, and I'll put in quotations, success that you saw. And I had those qualities in me. All I did was allow those to show up more than the rest of me. And I'm going to say there's a beautiful book, the title I remember always. It's called What Got You Here Won't Get You There and what i love about that title is it it was a mantra that it helped me get to a certain level of happiness a certain level of success and a certain level of fulfillment but then i plateaued and i couldn't get anywhere else and that version of just me limiting who i was and only showing up parts of who i am in only certain environments was affecting my life so then that takes me to the second pivotal moment of my life <laughs> where I'm working at the bank and I'm in one of those, I know I meant for more moments. <laughs> is this all it is supposed to be like? Um, is this what, you know, fulfillment and success feels like? Because I don't know, it doesn't feel as good as I thought it would when I got here. And I was looking for more. It reflected on my career and I, thought like, wow, I spent a whole bunch of time in in selling mode, Uh, meaning I was either a financial advisor, commercial banker, or I was in sales strategy, or I led financial advisory teams. But the part of the work that I really loved was the coaching and the people development aspect, but I didn't know what to do with it. But I was still in this sales leadership role. And what was interesting was I ended up running this team and they had just hired me I say it was maybe about five months prior to this event happening. And during that event, they hired me for my differences. So this was interesting. So they hired me because I thought outside the box, like I was actually showing up in this really authentic way, but what was happening, they, they hired me for my uniqueness and my difference. And then five months in, I, has, I, I picked up a team that was like ranked 298 out of 300. And so they have, the only thing I always look at is like, well, the only place they had to go was up. <laughs> like really, <they're> like <laughs> I'm here to like pick you guys up and it shouldn't be that hard because we are at the bottom, but really we're not going to get, we can't hit 300. But anyway, so I had a methodology in a way of, I knew how we could do this work. And if we focused on our customers and did the right thing and we stood by what they valued and we helped them get what they wanted, ultimately we would get what we wanted. Like that was sort of, I, I knew how we can do this. But what was happening was as I was trying to build the team and the culture and then that mindset that I all wanted them to all have, the results weren't happening fast enough. And so my leader was getting very impatient with me. <laughs> it's like, but we need it now. Like we need, it. I'm like, but it's only been a few months. Like, how can we expect this team to go from 298 to number one in a matter of months? Like that doesn't even, mathematically isn't even possible. And, you know, obviously when you're working in that sort of structure, there's like pressure from the top and that pressure, literally, it just ripples down. And, and I was starting to feel the pressure and. His uh, impatience, like, but I know this is going to work. It's going to work. Just trust me. Like, this this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do, and it's going to work. And it's going to work. And he said, "No, I'm I'm done with your way. You've got to do it this way." And this way meant a very micromanagement style, like moment by moment check-ins. And I'm like, "I'm not wired that way." And I said, "I can't do it. I can't do it." And I was good for like a couple weeks of really being resistant to that approach. And then I had to cave because I'm working. I got to do this thing. I got to do it. And so I said, I, okay, fine. I'll do it your way. I did it for two weeks and then I ended up in the ER. Wow. That incongruence to how I was showing up and how I knew, like what my internal radar integrity of how I needed to show up as a leader and as a mentor and as a coach to my team was affected me and my health. And so what happened, I was walking around the office and I started experiencing chest pain. I'm like, oh my God, I think I'm having a heart attack. And so I didn't tell anybody. I'm like, okay, I got to get to the ER because if I tell them, they're going to think I'm weak. They're going to think I can't handle the stress. (laughs) All this stuff's going through your mind while you're like panicking. Maybe you have a, having a heart attack. And so I got in the car, I drove myself to the ER complaining about numbness in my left arm and they, they wheeled me in and wired me all up. And I remember lying there and it was one of those Again, moments of truth, and I had these massive elephant tears coming down my face, and I'm thinking, is being who I thought everyone else wanted me to be, was it going to cost me my life in that moment? It was just one of those moments again, where, oh, I keep, like again, I'm I'm doing it again. I'm being who I think everybody wants me to be. I'm doing it the way they want it to be, but there was this part of me that. I was not aligning to, and I wasn't, I wasn't being as authentic as I knew I needed to be. And so I vowed if I got out of there alive, I'm going to try to figure out who I am. I'm going to do this me work and show up in my work and my leadership and in my business in a way that I knew I could add value and make an impact. And so that was back in, I'll say, mm, 2012. And so we're almost nine years later. It has been that moment, no matter how hard it was, it was the best thing that happened to me. And then a year later, it was funny because then I went back, I went and I I changed my name. I went back to my real name and instead of being known as Finca and Josie, I said, I'm going to own all of me. And I changed my name in my professional realm to Finca. It was a little bit of awkward, especially in the banking space when everyone was calling me Josie.
1: Because this is incredible. Those are two really powerful, pivotal moments, and I love how they sort of deviate into the two personalities being separated, or two personas, I should say, being separated, and then come together back into one. And I'm curious to know if, if your relationship with money was impacted by all of that, but before we get there, will you tell us more about your childhood and what it was like for you growing up, specifically around money? How is money related to and talked about in your home? It was, uh,
3: i going say talked about every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> there was such a pressure on Fridays. My father was, he owned his own business. He was in the construction world. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And I had the beauty of having my mom at home, and we'd come home for lunch, and she'd make lunch, and we'd go back to school. And so it was really, and you know, she'd be there when we were there in the morning, and she'd be there when we came home at night. But the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur and the cash flow challenges, depending on what's happening in the economy, and I will say the stories and beliefs you know, at the time as a kid, you don't know this stuff, but the stories and beliefs about money that my parents had, and I will say, continue to have ripple into the stories and beliefs that I inherited and that I continue to work with. It was interesting because money came quickly and money also left very quickly. And so, as fast as it came in, that's as fast as it was managed out. <laughs> and why I said uh, Fridays, it would be this moment of is dad getting paid this Friday? Are we getting a check? Are we going to have groceries? And somehow, always things worked out. And we had a lot, and then we had nothing. There's this constant roller coaster and unreliability on money and lack of trust that my own experience had with money. I would also know that as growing up, money was a big bone of contention. I guess that's that that saying like there's a constant relationship challenge my parents had when it came to money and that dynamic playing it out as kids was something that I got to be part of as well.
2: Would you say more about the stories and beliefs that were passed down?
3: One of the the things is, again, I guess that it comes in and it goes out so quickly that it, it as quickly as it comes, as quickly as it goes, there's not enough of it. And so I could see how that not enough money and that constant seeking of trying to figure out how to get more. And it was interesting because as I growing up, I ended up working in the bank, like I was still in high school, I was a teenager at the time working at the bank, money didn't feel like money to me. My friends would be like, wow, like you get to go in a vault and there's like thousands of dollars and the ATM machine, we'd load them up and you're holding like, you know, a couple hundred thousand in those cartridges. Like, it's like no big deal. I had this non-energetic relationship with money. It was just like, yeah, it's just paper. Like there was just this value. I didn't give it Because I think I just so much wanted to detach because I had such a negative experience with money growing up because of all the tension it created in our house. One of the bigger lessons that I've had growing up, especially earlier in my career, I started to inherit and I started to notice the same behaviors that was happening in my household, meaning as fast as it came out, that's as fast as it left. I would earn money and I'd spend it very quickly. (laughs) And then I learned I got a credit card, and it's like, oh wow, I can also spend money that's not my money. This is kind (laughs) of (laughs) cool. But then at the end of the year, you've got, oh, I've got to pay back this money. And so it was interesting. My earlier parts in my career, I would say, you know, that kind of before I remember, I think it was around when I hit 23. So I was working at the bank, I'd say 16, 17, and then I was around 23 years old. I was in this stage where every year I'd end up with like, Five or $10,000 of credit card debt. And I'm like, this is crazy. And by that point, I was earning seventy dollars or $80,000. And so even in my earlier part of my career, it's like, I don't understand. I was earning fifty dollars or $40,000, and I'd still end up with some debt. I had earned $80,000, and I still ended up with some debt. And by my mid-20s, I was in a really good, very high-paying role. My, uh, my tax return, I had a gross income of $380,000, and I had nothing to show for it.
2: Well.
1: Yeah. It was that a big aha. Uh-huh that moment for that's you?
3: how big it was. Like that's how big the no matter how much I earned, I couldn't hold money. I couldn't, I would, I would let it leave as quickly as it came. And as I work through, you know, and I continue to work through this, you know, the only where I'm at with it right now is that. I didn't learn how to hold money and value money for its resourcefulness. And what I the belief and the pattern of money that I had inherited was, you know, that as fast as it comes in, I spent it. Like it was just that's what I learned. And, and so for me over the last, you know, I can say 15, 20 years, it really has been unlearning those patterns and behaviors and relearning the ones that feel more supportive and generative that help me create the life that I want for myself and the impact that I want to have and my, for my family as well as how am I using that resource to build up my community and the
1: people that are around me think how did you unlearn those feelings and habits mhm wow <laughs> lots of self-work, like
3: a lot of self-work. And I think this work is something that you can't, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't found anyone that does it alone. This is where I think things like therapy, things like self-development courses and books and hiring coaches, those have been pivotal for me in figuring this out. And I, and I say, I continue to learn I continue to buy books about money. I continue to uh, on even just all of that, and so. And what I've learned also is that, as I've learned to embrace my enoughness, meaning I am enough, the reflection is also demonstrated through what money reflects back to me. And so I'll go back to you know those two stories that I shared with you at the beginning around not owning my name and not owning who I was and how I lead and how I, I do the way things I do. And I continue to figure that out as well. But if we only own parts of ourselves and we only say only this part is worthy for here and this part, part of my personality or my skill set is worthy to be shown here. It, that's how our money, money story is going to be fragmented like that as well. And so as I've learned to embrace myself fully in all of the, faults and follies, but also the magnificence and brilliance that I bring to the table. That has been a reflection of what has shown up in my money story as well. In my money tale, we'll call it my money tale.
2: <laughs> Thanks for that.
3: Yeah. And I, need to say for me, it's been my lesson now is how do I learn to hold money?
2: Can we focus on your brilliance a little bit? Because mm-hmm. You turned this this ship right. There's there's momentum, wind at your back, and it's hard to make those changes. I I love that you're not trying to do it yourself. You're you're seeking wisdom from others. But can you give us some of the steps you took outside of the reading and and other things to personally start moving your your savings objective, understanding your values to money.
3: I think part of it, so this is a term that I like to call when I, when I work with clients is called your brilliant difference. And what your brilliant difference means is that there are these things that you bring to the table. There are these personality traits, your skills, your expertise, characteristics, your values, all of that is captured under this thing called your brilliance. Now, for me, what I struggled with often was this brilliance. Okay, great. You're telling me I have these great qualities. And then I would get stuck in showing them because it would be like, well, this feels a little bit sometimes selfish. It's self-centered. Like it's not about me. Right. And that's where, when I were able to couple it with your brilliant difference, the difference part, meaning it's not just about you, it's actually here to add value and make an impact to others. And that's the difference part. And so for me, those two words mean so much because it's not about me. It's about this thing that I bring. It's the thing that Cami, you bring, and Sandy, that you bring that is brilliant. And we've got to realize it's not just meant to be held for us. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be offered. It's meant to be given to the people we live with, the people that we work with, and the communities that we get to spend time in. And that helped me go out and own my brilliant difference and bring it through my work. Now our work is a great place to add value and make impact, but it's also—I'm going to say—primary place. Would you guys say that we earn our money? Like that's mm-hmm. where the money tail gets generated. Like it, mm-hmm. it's, it's the people. generator, right? For many people, for many people, right? And so when we can look at our work and now, it doesn't it, whether whatever we're doing, all of us are bringing a brilliant difference to it, and that's why it's like this. You've got to figure out who you are and how do you bring that value. And that extension is the thing that you are bringing to your clients or that workplace. How are you living that out? And then as a result, you are receiving in exchange, this thing called money, a resource coming back to you. When I was able to put it in the construct of there's this thing that I'm giving And you know how with giving, there's also this, it's a two-place process, like it's giving and receiving. Like it's not just, I give, 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 because then if I don't learn how to receive, I'm not going to be able to give anymore. Learning how to receive the benefits, the rewards, the recognition, and the financial resources that get created as a result of sharing my brilliant difference and that reciprocal receiving has been and continues to be the thing that I learn. One of the things that's helped me. I learned this concept by Gay Hendricks. He wrote this book called The Big Leap and he calls it the upper limit problem. And what he shares is that there is an upper limit problem when like we're striving for a certain level of happiness, success or fulfillment, there's always like this threshold we come to that we can't seem to break through that moment. Let's talk about money. For some reason, you can't make more than 100000 a year, or you can't seem to break through the $50,000 savings mark with a million-dollar revenue. Because always when you get to that moment, there's something that happens that sabotages you, and you get back down, and you kind of have to go back, climb back up again. We see it, I don't know, I saw it with friends and relatives where they'd always make millions, but somehow they'd end up bankrupt. You see it with lottery winners. They've never had money. All of a sudden they have money and then all of a sudden they lose it all. And if we use Gay Hendricks' theory of the upper limit problem, what happens is we're not actually used to having that much money. So it's this thing that stretches us outside of our comfort zone. And anything that is outside of our comfort zone, our brain does not like. And somewhere in our subconscious, we do something to sabotage ourselves. In his book, he talks about getting sick, fighting with your spouse. Like there's all these things we do that we aren't realizing what's happening. And all our brain really wants us to do is get back in that comfort zone. I don't care that you're going to be making less and you're going to have less, but we are safe in this zone because it's, we know this zone. We don't know what it's like to have a million dollars. We don't know what it's like to make $10 million. And so we would do something subconsciously to go underneath this upper limit, even though the upper limit might be better for us, for our community, for all, because you might have all those things. It doesn't matter. It's your comfort zone. As I was thinking through that concept and I'm like, yeah, but it's so hard to make the leap between this belief of I deserve and I'm worthy of holding and having $10,000 in my bank account. Meaning every year, as I said, in my younger years, I would end up in $10,000 of debt for me. It was just, let me break even. Let me make, let me not owe anything at the end of this year. And then over the years, it's been, okay, let me end up with 10,000 and then 50,000. Like, How do you build that belief system if this upper limit thing is always going to try to sabotage me? So the way I've worked around it is this mantra called power primers. And all I look at it is we're priming our brain to believe that we are ready to get that next level of success. And so they start like this, meaning we say to ourselves, I am willing, I choose to, I believe, and I am. So for example, I am willing to hold a hundred thousand dollars at the end of this year in my bank account or in my savings. I'm willing to feel what that feels like. I'm willing to hold that. And the next one, you say, I choose to have $100,000 in my bank account, or I choose to have whatever experience you want. You can put anything you want at the end of that sentence, because now you're coming from a pl- position of conscious choice. So the first one is you're willing, meaning you're opening your brain saying, I'm willing to try this out. I'm t- willing to do this. I'm willing to feel this. I'm ex- willing to want this experience. The second one is about choice and coming from a place of autonomy and making like standing in that place of empowered choices that you're making. The third one is I believe and belief is strong because if we don't believe it, it's not going to happen. And so that's when we say to ourselves, I believe I can, I believe I am. And then the fourth one is I am where you're really standing in this place of I am I am the person that manages my money well enough that I have these wealth of resources available to me at the end of the year. I am that person. And that's been my process for years now. So I start the year with certain intentions, whether it's in my personal relationships, in my business, things I like to have fun with, as well as with my money tail, because all those things kind of, they all intertwine of what am I willing to have and be and do an experience? What do I choose to, what do I believe I can and what do I am, what I am. so I do that at the start of the year. And every quarter I revisit, I have a sheet here that, you know, even for the day, it's like, I'm willing to feel a little, you know, I'm willing to try something new today. I believe I can. Like I, even as a daily practice has become a way to continue to help myself be the person I see myself becoming. And this is the bridge. This has been the best bridge for me is using these power primers because I know my brain is way more powerful. Like my unconscious and subconscious brain is dictating 97% of my day. And this 3% that's in front of my prefrontal cortex is not so much (laughs) like it it does a lot. But if I can have control of it by telling my subconscious, with these power primers on who I want to become and start conditioning myself in that way then I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. And it's, and it's been working. So I'm going to say I, I, I'm, I'm confident in the process because I've been at it for
1: seven years, and it's still working. <laughs> it's still working. Thank you for sharing that. I love this process. I, I love the mindset shift that it enables. You start out at the beginning of the year, you check in quarterly. How are you measuring success? My limits test is: Am
3: I continuing to live and uphold to the purpose that I set out for my life, and the values that I want to live by? And if that is a reflected in my life experience, then I know I'm. That is my pass. So my goals can shift and change, but the intention of how I show up matters more than anything. My life purpose is to raise human consciousness to elevate the human condition. And that's whether I'm doing my work as a, as a coach and you know, mentor in my work or if I'm hanging out with my daughter and my husband, not that I'm intentionally like, okay, how can I raise human consciousness and elevate the human condition? Like that's not what I'm doing, but <laughs> it's behind the scenes. That's who I am and what I stand for. And then when it comes to my work and my life, it's like, okay, I value family. I value nature. I value community. I value making a difference. And if I can tick those boxes with when I sit in those moments quarterly and annually, and if my life is reflecting that, then I know my life is good. If it's not, it doesn't mean my life is not good. It just means this is an opportunity for me to make change and some shifts. Because what I've often found in my own personal experience <laughs> is in the past, I would make myself wrong for not feeling good because I should feel good. And and that actually made things worse. And so when we get ourselves in moments where we feel out of alignment or things aren't going as great, you feel stressed, you feel anxious, maybe you've been feeling like that for six months, it doesn't let's not berate ourselves for feeling like that. Let's actually use that to say, okay, maybe this is telling me, I don't want this in my life. From a money perspective, like doing my banking once a month was just like this dreadful thing. Like, oh God, I gonna sit down and do all the money stuff, right? Like there's, but how can I create something where it feels easy, fun, and I'm looking forward to it? So that was another way of looking at how to change certain things, but use it as a moment of clarity. All right, this is not working. Let's figure out why isn't it working? and what could work, and how could you change to do it next time?
2: Mm, well said. Great advice, too.
3: Yeah. If I can share one more thing. I know I'm not. we're not uh, on video, but I'm going to show you guys here. So this is another thing that I do to he- keep me focused on my goals. Instead of doing vision boards, I actually create a vision book, and I'm showing it here to Cammy and Sandy. And all the vision book are images of things that I want to create in my life. The things that money would need to help me fulfill. <laughs> I, you know, here that, so one of the pictures I'm showing Cami and Sandy is, uh, there's gardens, there's a greenhouse. So I do this vision book every couple of years. So the, this one is, it says uh, visions for 2019 and beyond. And I'm still having it because I'm still creating this stuff. But this particular image with this greenhouse guess what? We did that this year. So this greenhouse, we made one and built one and we have it here on our property on our little farm thing that we have going here. Last night I was in my garden picking tomatoes and making a fresh tomato salad. But there was one image in here that was so interesting. It was a picture of uh, Arizona and I've always wanted to go to Arizona to see the canyons. And it was a picture off of a particular rock in Sedona. I didn't have the intention of going there. But in January, I went there for a personal retreat for a week by myself. I ended up taking a picture, didn't realize it at the time, then came back and was going through my vision book. And I'm like, I was on that same rock. I have that picture. Wow. What I want to share is for me, money hasn't been about making money. Money has been about how do I create the experiences that I want in my life for myself and for my family. Doing things like this, like this vision book and capturing the images of things and the experience that I want in my life gives me a reason to earn money so I can have these experiences.
2: This book is really fantastic. As you were talking about your power primers,
3: mm-hmm. what was
2: going in my mind is the power of visualization.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you've created, you've, <laughs> you've next leveled because you've put it in a book. And I think a lot of us in today's day and age would think of, oh, I'll keep Pinterest or do something digitally. but there's something special about you memorialize that those the vision doesn't mean it can't change but I, no. I I think that's a neat tip.
1: And for listeners who can't see the book, I'll describe it. It's a very beautiful personalized book that most people would create using their own photographs from Shutterfly or, or any sort of online service. So see this like the cabin in
3: the woods. This, my husband is just finishing up the cabin in the woods for me to have my other office working out of there. So I can do my deep thinking work out of there my writing out of there. And literally we're just, we just, he's putting in the wood stove in this weekend. But again, these are longer dreams. You're not going to do everything in a year because imagine hitting all your life goals and all your life dreams in a year. Well, how boring would that be? And then you've got to do it all over again. Gosh, that's a lot of work. So I end up going on stock images and I find some of those wonderful free sites and I download the images that best represent what I want to create. And then I go into Costco's photo book service <laughs> and I upload them in there. So it's 12 inches by 12 inches. So it's a nice coffee table sized book and it's, you know, 50, 60 pages or I don't know, maybe 30, I don't know, somewhere on there of images to remind you because I think we can get so quickly lost in the day to day. And you know, as, as Kami, as you said, like the power primers are great because they're words that we can attach our thoughts and our feelings to for the things we want to create. But these images give me a visceral view of, oh, that's what it looks like. And so then we're tapping into more of our senses that helps us be more focused on what we want to create.
1: Okay. This is brilliant. How often are you pulling out your image books? It's always with me. So you see how quickly I just say, "Like, let me get that for you. And I'll show it to you." So it's right here all the time.
3: You know, I would say it is again that annual and quarterly moments where, what I said earlier, when I feel like I'm not in alignment, like when I go down in the down part of the, I'm in the valley versus I'm not. It's funny how we are as humans when things are going great. Like oh, I don't need anything. I don't need my books. I don't need my tools. I don't, and what I have learned over the years is that if I don't keep with my tools and my practices, I eventually get in the valley a whole lot faster. I was listening to this book by Susan Piver. And it she talks about people who struggle with alcohol addiction, what she had said was when they're on the verge of having that first drink, that verge of having that first drink started 30 days ago. It's not the thing that just happened but it's the fact that maybe they stopped calling their mentor 30 days ago, or they started taking on too much 30 days ago. And it's those little layers of triggers that happen that have them have the first drink. And then I'm going to translate it to, for those of us that don't struggle with that and, or are just like, I want to achieve my goals. What I was just talking about, if I don't have my practices and I stop my Meditation. I stop my running. I stop spending time outdoors, and I stop all those things. Putting good food in my body, and then all of a sudden, I get off of my my. Why isn't life working for me? Why am I spending more? Why aren't well? That actually didn't. It's not happening right now. It's all the decisions I made pre this that are forming this action and behavior that's happening today. So often we're so quick to look okay, at what's happening right now. Actually, it's not the thing that's happening now that's triggering you to make the thing not work. It's look at the. Past 30 days, 60 days, last six months, how have all those actions and behaviors been influencing what's happening and what's not working in your life today?
2: It is no wonder that you have a podcast and a book and a business all about selling from love based off of what you're talking about. It really is obvious in this conversation, but would you share with us a little bit more about the inspiration and what you're hoping to do for people? with your businesses?
3: The pillars of selling from love are all about number one, loving yourself, second, loving your client, and the third, loving your offer. There have been moments where I didn't love myself. And those moments translated to me being in a hospital bed (laughs) or translated into me not showing up as authentically or as wholly as I could have. And when it came to even the selling aspect, I find that what happens is we especially for business owners and for organizations who have targets to fulfill and revenue quotas to achieve, we get so focused on our agenda that we forget about who it's really for. And that's our clients and our customers. And so that's the piece of the second pillar is, you know, when we put the interest of others and that we serve others first before our own personal and professional needs that they get what they want and we also get what we want. We can't be doing it to get what we want. You can't be like, all right, I'm going to get, give Sandy and Cammie what they want so that I can <laughs> get what I want. You know, that intention can't be there. It just really needs to come from a place of service. You really need genuinely need to care about the people that you're here to help and do the good work that you're here to do for them. And then loving your offer was all, it's all about, you got to love the thing that you're selling. And I knew even when I was in the banking world, I didn't always love what I was selling, meaning there was kind of like, you got to sell this thing. But it was my responsibility to figure out how to love it. Because if my team and the organization was behind and they created this wonderful product and I had something wrong with it, I got to figure out, okay, why do they all love it? And I don't, (laughs) so I got (laughs) to figure that out. So I had to do some homework to figure out how to love it. And sometimes the way we love our products and services is actually by the feedback our clients give us. And so you sometimes need to give it and put it out in the world and then they will give you feedback and say, Oh, this is so amazing. This is so awesome. Thank you for doing that for me because look at what it allowed for me to have. And then I will say there are those of us that are in jobs that are like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't love this thing that I have to do for my job and what I love. I'd rather be, you know, doing whatever. The other thing that you can love is what your paycheck allows you to do for your family. Mm -hmm. That it allows you to put food on the table, send your kids to ballet school or to soccer practice or riding lessons for my daughter or a horse or a saddle pad or whatever she needs. Some days there might be not days that we don't love what we're doing, but we've got to find the love somewhere. Meaning how could you love the effect or the impact of your work? into your personal life and what it allows for your family to do. I look at it, it, how can we raise our own consciousness? How can we be more aware? Because if we're not aware of what's not working, if we're not aware of how we're getting in our own way or the impact we have on others, it's very difficult to make change. And my goal is to give people another option and self from love. I feel it comes from a place of authenticity, empathy, and integrity. That's my hope that it, it delivers for people.
1: I, think I love how I love I love how you have taken your life's journey and you have figured out the through lines and that you're using all of that to help people make good decisions for themselves and seek the alignment in their own lives. I firmly believe that
3: you need to be a student of your own work. So if we're, if we're out there putting ourselves out there saying, you know, this will work or that'll work, or here's an idea, or here's a suggestion, or here's some advice I'll just share and share it with you. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too. I'm okay with that.
2: You have a husband and a daughter and it sounds like this lovely family. How are you talking about money as a family and talking through and sharing your values?
3: So back in 2015, we lived in Toronto our whole lives. My husband and I, and our daughter when she was, she was at the time she was uh, six years old. And we were having one of those, what do we want in our lives? What do we want more of? What do we want less of? And that's when we made the big decision to sell our city life and move to the country. And so we moved to 85 acres, a couple hours northwest of Toronto. And everything has been new here. like we've got gardens and horses, and we've decided to grow lavender. Um, I keep bees now like this so there's all these little things that we do. As part of it also, we had to make some decisions around money and how we were going to live and what kind of lifestyle we wanted to have. And so part for us has been really important to choose to one grow most of our food and raise our own I can say chickens and stuff like that. So that way, one, it's economical, but it's also good for the earth. And it's made us more mindful of how we use our resources. And so that, I think that has made us more mindful of how we use our money and the resources that are around us. So that way we don't take them for granted and, and overspend frivolously that, cause that's again, that spending mindset, just take, 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 spend, 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 you know, it's always there. And so that, that has made us more mindful on that. And then it was funny, a couple of years ago, we had, uh, every, we, we have this, like when we came here, we have a family book of our family goals and the things that we want to create. And every year we open the book and we say, Oh, we made that. We did that. And we crossed the things off the list. And if there's anything else we want to add, we add on that. And in, was it in 2018, I had this opportunity to go and speak in Amsterdam. And in that year, we were also talking about building a cabin. It's funny that I'm talking about it and the cabin got built this year. So it was the three of us and we're like, okay, so either mom can go do the talk and whatever that extra money is, we can take that money and we can build the cabin or we all go together and that extra money we spend as a family vacation. That decision took us weeks, (laughs) weeks to decide. And it was interesting. So we did sort in our book. I I still have the paper to this day on how we decided. You know what we would, what the benefits would be if we went, the experiences we would create, and if we didn't go, what we would miss out on. And then we did the same thing for the cabin. We decided on the family trip together, which is again, you know, that experience it can never take away. It was just so beautiful what we are, but going through that process of deliberately. And consciously choosing how to spend our money as a family. My husband to this day, he will say that was a two against one. He wanted the cabin. We, want, <laughs> we wanted the trip. And it was so funny. But at the same time, you know, he was part of the decision. He 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 did finally cave, but it wasn't a cave, it was a conscious decision. And, you know, we, we have fun with it now. And looking back, I think it's just the decisions that I know I've made and that we've made as a family that we just kind of went off the cuff, especially big decisions. We need to spend time to sit and think through them. Does this align to the values that we want to live? Is this going to give us more of what we're looking for or less of what we're going to look looking for? I know for us, it was super important when we moved up here to not have as much debt, mortgage, all those things. I didn't, I don't want to come and, take my city life and bring it here and have a massive house or massive upholding uh, expenses that would limit the life experience I could create for myself so that we were really intentional of how we wanted to live and how much money we wanted things to be, or I wanted to trade for more freedom, for more lifestyle benefits versus fancier countertops or things like that. You know? So I think, but all of our values are different. We still work through making those decisions. If you can think of, you know, four or five values that are most important, use that as your decision matrix tree. That's what I call it. You know, so when you're making these big decisions, is it aligned to whatever those top five values are? If it gives you more freedom, more family time, more nature time, whatever it is for you, then, then, you know, those are ghosts. If it doesn't, then don't do it.
1: We talk a lot on money tales and in the work that we do about the importance of identifying your values and living a life in alignment. And I love the stories that you shared because you're demonstrating that and you've developed these really cool processes that people can take away from this conversation and utilize in their life, which is really a gift. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. What is your next money conversation going to be Finca? And who's it gonna be with? I think the
3: next money conversation I am going to have will be with my husband. Uh, <laughs> I, there is an opportunity for us to look at how are we willing to expand our money tale, I will say like how, what's the next version of how we are looking to create more of these experiences for ourselves and how is money part of that story? And what is that relationship with money that we have to continue to create? That would be, that it.
2: sounds like a great conversation. I know.
3: I can't wait. And I can feel the tension already brewing.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it doesn't. It doesn't mean it's always easy, right? Oh,
3: no it's, way. No yeah. way. It's 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 part of it. I think that's what makes it exciting. Like guys, like if we're if it's always easy, if it doesn't have tension, like we associate tension with bad. It is not bad. That's what makes it so good. Because when we break through the tension, it's like wow. That's what makes it worth it. Because if you didn't have attention, then it wouldn't be worth it. So. Can't wait, Nick. We're going to be talking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, think I have fun with that conversation. Thank I'm you. sure you will approach it like everything else you do in your life with love, which is really a great pr- foundation and premise. So um, we, we wish you guys a lot of luck and we hope you enjoy the new cabin and, and the new stove. It sounds wonderful. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks with us.
3: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much, Sandy and Cammy, for having me here today.
1: I mean, what was your biggest takeaway from this eye-opening conversation with Finca Yurkovic?
2: Wasn't it fascinating for her to talk about her two names, Josie and Finca, and when she used them? I absolutely understand this. I grew up in a world that had a lot of people with unique names, and it's hard when you stand out like that. Finca brought to life how it made her feel. But what it did was then she required her to, to remember which person she was. Was she Finca? Was she Josie? And I really appreciated her story when she came to the realization that this isn't doing anyone any good. And she's Finca and she's proud to be Finca, which by the way is such a beautiful name. I love that when she embraced it, she realized that she could show up authentically and without faking it any, anymore. And as a result, it just sounded like her whole world just kind of stepped up. It stepped up to her and she felt better as a result.
1: I agree, Cammy. I love that she brought those two personas together into a complete whole. Another thing that Finka said that I thought was interesting that I think many people can relate to, is how she inherited money behaviors. Money was coming in and she was spending it. And that was a cycle that, that she observed as a child in her own family growing up and one that she said was pervasive throughout her family. Sometimes having that awareness is a really big deal in and of itself. Finka didn't stop with just the awareness she really worked at how to unlearn those behaviors. And I loved the tips and tricks that she taught us about how to do that. Power priming, brilliant, envisioning your future and your goals in a very visceral way that goes beyond the vision board was fascinating to me. And I had so much fun when she showed us her her vision book, and I wish listeners could could see it. I loved how Finca would share that she'd take this book out all the time and look through it and and get her inspiration. And that really became part of her subconscious.
2: That subconscious is so important. Sandy, that story where she went to Arizona and took a picture and then goes back and looks at her book and realizes the photo I took was in my book. I believe strongly in the power of your brain that visualization and what she is doing with this book is really the next level. The mind just sitting there thinking about it is great. Putting it in a book is such a great tool to bring what you're doing visually and bringing that to life.
1: And what better way is there to make sure that you and your loved ones are on the same page? Literally.
2: Absolutely. Speaking of loved ones, Sandy, something resonated with me when she talked about her next money conversation that she was going to have with her husband. And then it wasn't going to be easy. And I really appreciated Finka saying, no, effectively, that's okay. Tension isn't a bad thing. It's so human, and it's why life is so special. At times, not to always have tension, (laughs) but that not to run away from it. That it can, it it actually can be the foundation for something really special and unlock something really special.
1: Yes, and especially when it's tension around money. Right, if you can gather the strength to have difficult money conversations, bringing all the things that we've talked about with guests into the conversation, confidence empathy, a clear understanding of what your needs are. That can really help get through these conversations. And like Finka said, once you get through the tension, it's all sweetness thereafter.
2: This was a great conversation. Thank you again, Finka Yurkovic, for joining us on Money Tales and sharing your experiences and your wisdom and providing such good insights for all of us listening.
1: Yeah, there's so much that you shared. And listeners, be sure to check out Finca's book and also her podcast. She's doing a lot of great stuff that all of us can continue to benefit from.
2: And remember to reach out to us. We love hearing from our listeners. You can email us at podcasts at Asperient.com. And join us next week for our next episode.
0: You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Kami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirantcom slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.